Well, our Father and our God, we are so grateful this morning uh, to be able to come into your presence, being a part of the body of Christ, uh, actually being members of the ultimate divine institution on earth with our our King who is in heaven and our citizenship in heaven. We are so thankful. And in a sense, Lord, uh, we are globalists in that uh, is, uh, that you've de- designated or that uh, us to go out into the world and, and reach people for the world and attract people in, into, into the church. And so, Father, we pray that uh, as uh, Satan continues to wreak havoc in this world and to uh, carry out the, the uh, plans that he has that God allows him to carry out, uh, we pray that you'll give us strength uh, to be uh, witnesses uh, that uh, glorify you regardless of the circumstances. Uh, help us not to be complainers. Uh, help us also, Father, to remember that uh, the divine institutions overall are institutions of uh, your creation, including government, which includes uh, borders and uh, common culture, language, laws. That is also part of your plan. And so, Father, we pray that... Uh, as it depends upon us, help us to understand how to clearly communicate your will for how to be involved in this world and, and yet be separate. Uh, thank you for this class this morning. Uh, thank you for Ray and, the, and how you have gifted him uh, to teach us. I thank you for your spirit that uh, enables us to receive what we're taught and uh, to retain it and to apply it. So I pray the special blessing for Ray as he teaches us and for us as we hear and listen. In uh, Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Jim. Well, our focus this morning is government, obviously, and uh, primarily how should in that divine institution that uh, Jim prayed about, how should government function? In other words, what is God's design for it? Which encourages a few questions that we can raise concerning that. And some of them may be, if a government is not functioning in the way that God has designed, does that uh, free you from the obligation that we have in verses 1 and 2 of Romans? And I think all of you would uh, recognize that, uh, no, it does not. But uh, God does have a design, and he holds leaders responsible. They're more responsible, just as teachers in James chapter 3 are held to a higher standard because of the exposure that they have to truth and teaching. So also government leaders, there's not a specific verse that indicates that, but uh, I think it's consistent with everything else that the Bible teaches. They're held to a higher standard. But it's not our responsibility to determine that, and uh, we'll talk some more about that. Not so much today, but uh, either next week we'll talk some more about what are those situations where we might resist, where we might even oppose, even though 
the passage we're going to focus on, on the function of government and what we saw last time, that uh, that in general goes against what God desires in terms of authority. So let's take a look at this concept, and I'm going to give a little bit of a review as well, and we'll uh, get into uh, the passages that deal with the function. And this, these are the, probably the clearest passages in the scriptures that give us an outline of the design. We have some hints elsewhere, Genesis 9 and other passages that tell us the intention for this divine institution we call government. And in the Roman Empire, the seat of government was essentially of the entire empire was located in this location here. Some of us were fortunate to be able to walk some of those streets there. And to give you some orientation, the Colosseum is in the background there. I don't know if you can recognize it there. Far background, as far as you can see in the background. And the uh, Temple of Antonius. And what was the other name? I can't remember. And uh, together there, kind of in the center. So this is the seat of government. This is where decisions would have been made. Emperor's residence would be off to the right, and the believers in the various little churches at Rome would have been very familiar with the scene on the screen there. And again, just for context, we're talking about the next portion after the doctrinal section of the Book of Romans that deals with the provision of God's righteousness and then God vindicating his righteousness in relationship to Israel. So we're talking about application. What does this righteousness look like when it's lived out in various situations? We call that application. How does it look like when uh, we have the closest relationship, God himself? First two verses, Christianity is a life of leaving oneself on an altar available to God's use, giving one's life over to him like a living sacrifice. And that spills over in relationships in the church. And in those relationships, the focus is ministry, the exercise of spiritual gifts. Two things are focused, the exercise of gifts and the loving of those within the body of Christ. And it extends even beyond that in the latter part of chapter 12. And even gets into issues of justice and how has God designed in a major way, justice, and that's primarily through government. So the, the other area, what does Christianity look like in society? How do we respond in situations relating to society in, in, in itself? And it starts with government and then more broadly after we look at verse 1 through 7. And then he's going to deal with Christian liberty in chapters 14 and 15. And we have some more principles to apply in uh, those passages as well. So that's the context. We're looking at society, 13, and primarily government itself. In outline form, that's in chart form, in outline form, kind of the same elements here. Application of God's righteousness in relationship to God, application to the church, and now application to society. And the focus... First seven verses, submission to authority. Two major areas, submission in general, 
and taxation, basically. What about taxes? Uh, We won't get to that today, but verses 6 and 7 will deal with that whole area. And maybe we ought to save it for April 15th, right? Or maybe before, because you need to pay your taxes, right? So first two verses, a huge principle that you see all over Scripture. In fact, I gave you kind of a little bit of a background all the way to even before creation of the universe. Uh, Submission is a fundamental principle that God has established. And we could even say from verse 1 that he has built the concept of authority and submission to authority, even in the creation itself. And all of the divine institutions are related in one way or another to this concept of submitting to authority. So we have the foundation of it, verses 1 and 2. The response, quick review of verse 1, we are to respond to authority by submitting to it. That's the basic response in the passage. And it's very broad. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. So very broad. In fact, it's emphatic. It's in the first position, if you will. In the Greek text, and whatever comes at the very beginning is usually the stress of uh, most sentences. So every person is to be in subjection. So we have the subject right off the bat. That's the focus. So all of us are to be in subjection to the governing authorities. We focused on authorities and authority last time. And we also focused at the end on the concept of submission And we saw the word hupotasso has the basic meaning of to submit or to put oneself under. It uh, was used as a military term as well. And you can vividly kind of see the ranking that you have in all military historically, but even today. So it has the idea of to line up like in a column or in attention, lining up under the authority, or to rank one under, or more broadly, in terms of the idea that we think of to submit to authority. So that's the idea of hupotasso that we looked at last time. So it was a word in the military, they would say fall in. That's right. And everyone form up. Yep. Fall into line. Submit. And biblically, it begins with submission to God. In fact, if we're not in submission to God, uh, we will more than likely not be in submission to anything else. So it begins there. And we saw that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. And it includes primarily the attitude of the heart. So it's a heart attitude. It's Certainly possible to outwardly submit, but our heart attitude is one of rebellion, and the Bible always goes to to the heart, and so it includes the heart, and it's also at the heart of the Christian life. So very, very important concept, and the Lord didn't wake me up in the middle of the night and command me to go over the whole thing again, so you guys are spared. We'll move on in the passage. So, that's the first part of verse 1. The second part, there are two parts there. In fact, two sentences in verse 1. 
The focus of the second sentence is the ruler, or you could even pluralize it, rulers of authority. No authority. There is no authority except from God, which is a striking statement. And I said last time, I I think what he's laying out in verse 1, this broad concept that includes certainly government, but it goes far beyond that. In fact, we'll review a little bit of that as well. Authority in general. And I think we need to look look at it that way because we're called to submit to all authority. And I think it broadens it in this last part. There is no authority, including any other authority besides government. And all of those authorities, they all come from God. That's the source. And I tried to demonstrate last time that this is just built into the creation, built into everything that God has created, including angelic creatures, Do you remember we looked at that uh, passage in Isaiah, the fall of Lucifer, the, the greatest of the angels, wanted to set what? His throne above the throne of God, or at least equal to God. That's a throne is a picture of rulership or authority. So the question is the issue of authority, even in the fall of Satan himself, And he rebelled against the fixed order that God had established in even creating angelic creatures. We saw similarly that in the fall of man. So it's built in to the creation. This is how God has designed everything around us. So a very, very important concept. And therefore, those who resist authority are going against the things that God has established. So God has delegated, we looked at this, delegated it in different areas in general. He has given sovereignty or rulership to mankind. He has given man authority, at least over the earth. Genesis 1.28, we looked at that passage. And then God has established all of these various divine institutions where authority is at the heart of these and uh, regulating and functioning within these divine institutions requires the concept of authority. In our culture that is in rebellion to God, they view divine institutions as simply social structures. They have to do with the design of man, and as man changes or as man thinks, he can change these. They're variable. They're not fixed. That's kind of the uh, the view of the secularist. Uh, they're arbitrary. Uh, the, you can change them. So it doesn't matter that you have that you have a husband and a wife. You can have two men that can marry, two women that could marry, etc. So the divine institution of family. You can change it as conditions can change or as man's ideas change. That's the secular idea. That would also be government as well, but it would include all of the divine institutions. As you know, they're under attack today by the culture that we live in, so they're arbitrary. But the biblical view is that these are divine institutions that God has set up And for culture to function, 
these divine institutions are what God has designed for the proper and the best functioning of culture. And when we violate these divine institutions, as is very common in the culture we live in, uh, including government, but including marriage, the divine institution of marriage has been highly compromised and undermined by the thinking of the culture. And as a result, the divine institution of the family and relationships of children to parents, these are all divine institutions where authority is established. And this, I think these are in view in 13.1 and the following passages, 13.2 and all the way to verse 7, I think they're more specific to government. But the call to submission in all of these areas, I think, is applicable to husbands and wives. God has designed the family with headship, husbands as the head. And when uh, women go against that headship or undermine it, undermine that authority, they are going against the ordinances of God, as the passage indicates. And when children rebel and do not submit to the authority of mothers and fathers, then they are in rebellion, similarly on the job site or in the first century master-slave relationships within the church as well. God has established leadership and then certainly in government as well, the focus of the rest of the passages here. And then it's added to the sentence here, and those which exist, very strong statement, are established by God. Now, we know from lots of other passages, God is not responsible for any evil or any distortions that come from any of those divine institutions. Man is fully responsible for all of the deviations, all of the evil, all of the things that come out of these divine institutions. But ultimately, God is the one that has established them. And at the heart and the essence of them, God only permits certainly deviations. And then he comes and uh, enters into judgment in time. And there's lots of examples of that as well. And we'll look at a few passages here where God raises up countries and also puts them down. And we can view that as God intervening when governments go beyond what God permits in terms of permitting and allowing them to, uh, to be corrupted and to be uh, evil, in fact. So the basis of submission here is the sovereignty of God. And we need to look up some other passages to kind of emphasize the need and the context of these. For example, these Daniel passages, the Jeremiah passage. Would somebody look these up? Uh, somebody get into Daniel and I'll have you read all of the Daniel ones. And somebody look up Psalm 2 and somebody else get the Jeremiah passage. Particularly Daniel and Jeremiah, the, the Psalm passage is a little broader and more general. But if you remember, Daniel is living under a very pagan, a totalitarian system, an anti-Jewish country. In fact, they destroyed the nation of Israel. I've got Daniel. Okay, that's Connie. Steve looks like... i got Psalm. Yep. Who's that, Steve? Oh. Yes. Okay. 
All righty. Somebody got Jeremiah? Well, we'll let you look. Yeah, I've got it. Katie's got it. Okay. Uh, first of all, Connie, why don't you read uh, Daniel? And remember, Daniel is in Babylon. So this is a situation. And he's under the totalitarian king that ruled the entire world. And he was a ruthless king that anything that he said would uh, be law and would be expected. And we're going to come back to these when we talk about situations where you have to go against the decrees even and the demands of a totalitarian system. But in general, we submit because we recognize that God is sovereign over that Nebuchadnezzar. God is sovereign over whoever is in charge in whatever situation and in whatever divine institution. So, Connie, why don't you start off with uh, Daniel yeah, 2.21. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Okay, and especially when you're under a totalitarian government or one that is headed in that direction or one that is abusive, or one that is violating a lot of biblical principles, God can remove that, and we as believers can trust in that sovereign hand of God. And as long as that ruler is there, we can trust that God is permitting it, and we are called to submit. Also read 37 of the same chapter. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and a glory. So that kind of supports from the Old Testament. Uh, Those authorities that exist are established from God. In other words, even in Daniel's time, this concept was recognized and true. And the king there is Nebuchadnezzar. Now skip to chapter four, because we have the words of Nebuchadnezzar himself after God humbled him and God intervened sovereignly. 417. Go ahead. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. Okay. Uh, that is Nebuchadnezzar talking. Okay. That's what I right after, you know, right after the lowest of men, it says this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Okay. So, so he recognized, but this is after God sovereignly intervened and humbled him. Mm-hmm. The recognition that even a pagan authority recognized that ultimately God is the authority. Steve, you got Psalm 2, first few verses there, 2 through 4. Yes. The king of the earth take their the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Okay. So we have the human plans and the human perspective, and then we have the divine perspective in verse 4. In other words, men or kings or rulers or presidents or governors or, since we broadened it, husbands... We could even, by way of application, church leaders, whatever, we could 
make see them making plans and and in fact designing things that go contrary to God. God sits up there and laughs. He could just let them go. And eventually, if you read the rest of the psalm, he intervenes and this is a messianic psalm where he's going to bring the ultimate king eventually. But in the meantime, as we endure, as we find ourselves in these situations, we can trust that the sovereign God has a plan for us within whatever situation he has put us in, whether a marriage or whether a a church or within a certain government. Did anybody get Jeremiah 29? Yeah, I did. Oh, that's right. Katie had it. All right, uh, uh, 29.4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Let me stop you there. Okay, it tells us where they're in exile. These are the exiles. And now God has revealed that they're going to be there for 70 years. So basically what he's saying is, you know, this is my will. This is, you are in Babylon and you have, there's a purpose here. So what you need to do is you need to kind of fit into that system. He's going to explain in the next few verses and basically function in that situation. The implication submitting to that authority. Keep reading, Katie. Okay. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens, and eat their produce. Take wives, and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease. And seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare." That parallels and is very similar to what we have in the New Testament. In other words, submit to that authority, work towards the welfare of that totalitarian evil system that just destroyed your entire nation and left the city of Jerusalem and the temple burning and in ruins. Now you're in Babylon, and you're to work to the welfare and the betterment of that culture. Now, they also have the promise that they'll be released. I don't know if they all necessarily remembered it, but the whole concept of submitting there, even though the word is not specifically spelled out, uh, working towards the benefit. And we have a little bit of that in Romans 13. And not only that, but what we have in... uh, what is it? First Timothy were to pray as Jeremiah even encourages there in, in that verse seven, is it? So because you you can trust and the children of Israel in Babylon could trust that God was using that time and they need to live, just carry on normal life, even though it's a foreign country, not trying to rebel on the occasions to get back to the land of Israel until God opened that door. And we see examples of Jesus himself. Anyone care to quickly look up Luke 2:51? Remember we saw that 1911. We won't look that one up. Somebody quickly get 251. I got it, Ray. Good. Go ahead. And he went down with them. This is Je- this Nazareth. is Jesus. This is Jesus. 
and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Okay, that's a 12-year-old, preteen, the Lord Jesus, submitting to his parents, setting an early pattern, and you see it later on throughout his life, but he was trusting in a sovereign God. And I've got Acts 19, 11, Jesus answered. This is to Pilate. Remember, we looked at this last time. Pilate threatens him and says, you know, I have authority to, to put you on a cross or I have authority to let you loose. Kind of loosely paraphrased the preceding verse there. Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. That's the Romans 13 passage. For this reason, he he who delivered me to you has a greater sin. Jim? Uh, Also, I mean, you can see this authority at work when Jesus said uh, uh, to to Judas, he said, uh, uh, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Uh, We will come to him and make our abode with him. And then he says, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. You know, he he said uh, that he always did what the father told him. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing, he's the most perfect example. He is the perfect example of, of submission in the in in the flesh, uh, yet in even in carrying out that perfect submission, he never uh, he never carried out anything that was sinful, even if he was you know ordered to do so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's lots of example. He is the he is the perfect pattern of submission in his humanity. But remember, we looked at that First Corinthians 15 passage last time where even within the Godhead, there is an eternal submission, if you will. Hierarchy. Yeah, there's there's that hierarchy, even within the Godhead, which is kind of an interesting concept, without without diminishing equality. So submission... It is is an an interesting concept. Uh, I think the challenge for me, and, and maybe for others too, is finding that balance, though, of when not to submit uh, and do it in righteousness. Right. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk some more about that next time. We want to first establish the, the the general pattern, the overall pattern, and there are a few exceptions that we'll look at next time. So we could look at a lot of passages in the life of Christ. In fact, we could look at passages. That should be New Testament. Stephen, Acts chapter 7, is an example of submission under the severest of circumstances unto death. That's that's an example of submission even unto death of of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And you can trace through the book of Acts other examples of others, Peter, even Paul and uh, other of the apostles that uh, were submissive to the governing authorities. But we also find the exceptions in the book of Acts as well. But we'll, we'll reserve that for next time.
So verse 2, in fact, I'm just summarizing here and reviewing and emphasizing over particularly the concept of authority. Verse 2 focuses on the reasons. And by the way, next time I want to expand a little bit the reasons as well, why we can submit, because there's others that we have in the following passages. But it begins in verse 2. The first one, therefore, whoever resists authority, this is probably the main reason, has opposed the ordinances of God. So rebellion within the husband-wife relationship, within the family with children, within the church, within uh, the government, is actually resisting the authority of God, opposing the ordinances, the decrees, you might even say. So one of the main uh, reasons for, for submission we could go all the way back to verse 1. I'll expand that this next time. But even the nature of creation, God has built into the creation authority. I've kind of spoken of that. We could expand that and say that by divine decree, the word there, ordinances, has the idea of God decreeing or setting things, establishing things relating to like law. And in this case, we could even see not just Mosaic law, but broader in terms of natural law, you might even say. He's built the universe such that uh, authority is an essential part of it. And resisting that authority opposes those, those ordinances. Now, take a look at that word resist. It's related to the word hupotasso. That's the word that we just looked at, meaning to submit to authority. And notice the word resist is antitasso. Hupo is what? To put under authority. And what is antitasso? Anyone have that? Against authority. Against. Yeah, the opposite. In other words, hupo and anti are, in this context, opposites. So it's translated to resist. And in some contexts, the same word has the idea of even opposing, not just resisting, but even going beyond the resistance to opposing. So has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation. So we have a, a second reason there is there's damage that can be received as a result. There's condemnation. There's judgment for resisting that authority. And it's upon themselves. In other words, it's brought on and it's, it, it's not a desirable situation. So verse 2 that kind of summarizes, we didn't get into verse 2, but it gives us kind of an introduction to verses 3 through 5, where he's going to expand and give some further reasoning concerning why we should submit. So we have the foundation for submission, and now we have the function, the focus on the function of the state, giving further reasons why we need to submit. 3 and 4, the rulers of authority, and in this context, the state itself or government, they have a ministry, a ministry. That's an interesting choice of words that Paul uses here, uh, showing that they have a function, a role that comes from God. It supports the idea that authority comes from God. And from God's perspective, 
He has given rulers a stewardship. Now it's up to them to seek him, and it's up to them to function within parameters he has set. And I think we have some of those parameters here in 3 through 5, actually. For rulers, and here's the first one, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. So that's a reason why we should support and not, or submit and and not oppose or resist authority. The design is they're not intended to be a cause for fear for good behavior. If you fit within the laws, do what is expected of the authority, then there's nothing to be fearful of. Rulers are not to function in that way. Now, when rulers do, they are outside of the parameters that God has set for them, but it's not us to uh, judge them or to necessarily remove them other than, well, in our system we can vote, but other than that, we don't uh, revolt, if you will. So rulers are a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. In other words, this is part of the design of, of government and one of the purposes. And he adds to that, do you want to have no fear of authority? In other words, we should fear authority, just like the scriptures encourages us to fear God, because God has instituted authority. In fact, our fear of government should be related to that fear of God because there's that relationship between God and uh, the authorities he has established. So there are three primary roles of government, and you see this elsewhere, but we have them summarized here in Romans. The first one is the purpose and the main function of government is the restraining of evil, the restraining of evil. And at the heart of all governments, of all times, they have in in some measure fulfilled this. They have restrained evil, and that was part of the design of God. Now, unfortunately, some governments, because they're run by men, fall into evil themselves and are the perpetrators of evil and evil policies. But uh, that's not because God uh, desires it or condones it, but it's because even though within the, the divine institution, the authority is delegated to sinful men. But the essence of the role of government is to restrain evil and Most governments have court systems and have a judicial system and a means of restraining evil. And we can expand this a little bit and see in the Old Testament. Would somebody look up Exodus 21 and I'll have you read it. Who hasn't read yet? Anyway, as you're looking it up, we can gather from uh, the law and from several passages, particularly within the law, like passages like Exodus 21, which is an expounding of the Mosaic law, passages in Deuteronomy. In fact, I'll have you look up another one in Deuteronomy. So somebody be ready to look up a Deuteronomy. Exodus 21, 22? Yep. Who's got it? Arthur? Okay, if- If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with a child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, 
he shall surely be fined as a woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as a judge decide. Okay, so that's the the law, the Mosaic law in relationship to the nation of Israel. Here's a very specific one. There's many other very specific ones. And notice that it includes punishment as well. So you have a system that God established in the nation of Israel, and it's an example in general of uh, what governments do. Uh, read 33 and 34. Okay, 33 and 34? Yep. If a man opens a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead animal shall become his. Okay, so very another very specific. In fact, the Mosaic Law is very specific in terms of the exercise of government. And in this case, it's the Jewish government. And for violation of specifics, there is Old Testament punishment. And from many passages in the law, we can come to some conclusions concerning the purpose of these laws and the purpose of government and the role of government. And I think particularly in Israel, these laws and the punishment that go along with them uh, have lots of purposes. I think they teach basically the concept of right and wrong. In other words, what is right? What is permissible? What is God's will? What is wrong? And we can uh, apply even the law in the church, not in the specific outworking of it, but we can see what, what things are right, what things are, are wrong. And that's one of the applications we can draw from passages of the law. And certainly another purpose is to restrain evil. Once you know what is wrong, then you want to avoid that. So there's the avoidance. That's another purpose of the Old Testament law and the punishment that goes along with it. And the punishment is to deter the crime or the violation. So that is a third purpose that we can look at. But it also has a corrective aspect to it, rehabilitation, you might even say. And you see that in that Exodus 21-22, you know, there, there's restitution, and particularly 33 and 34, you have res restitution as part of the Mosaic law. And you might say it's to prevent vengeance. In other words, you don't take out individual judgment. You allow, as we saw in chapter 12 of Romans, you allow the vengeance of God. And one of the means that God brings vengeance or justice, you could substitute the word justice, is through the implementation of the punishment that specified by the government. So here you have five good reasons for the law and government and punishment that goes along with it. And uh, we could evaluate all governments on the basis of the, the way that God set it up. Now, interestingly, uh, I kind of got interested in kind of a side study. So real quickly, what about prisons? What do you all think about prisons? Is that a biblical concept? There's examples, right? Lots of them. Book of Acts, Peter was thrown into prison. So was Paul. What do you think of prisons? Anyone? Well, under the law, this is Jeff. Under the law, um, 
there were cities of refuge for the manslaughter. But in all other cases of lesser problems, lesser crimes, it was merely a matter of punishment and repayment. There were, there were no prisons back. Under the Jewish system is what you mean. I, I opened the sentence with under the law. Right. Yeah. Good. Yeah, exactly. Arguably, because the cities of refuge might have been regarded that way. No, oh, uh, they were not regarded as prisons. They were regarded to prevent vengeance. They were they were actually a place of refuge for the criminal until the 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 system could execute the justice. In other words, once they decided the case, then it was the government that executed the vengeance. And those cities of refuge were that Jeff brings out are an excellent example. They weren't prisons. They were they were more along the lines of places of refuge. In fact, that's what they're called, cities of refuge, to prevent the immediate and personal and individual working out of vengeance. So that's. But you were still stuck there. Pardon me. But you were still stuck there. Well, well it was a, it, you were you were stuck there until the death of the high priest, which, by the way, was a foreshadowing of Jesus. But the cities of refuge were solely for the purpose of the individual who accidentally killed someone. And for protection. It, and it was for protection for the person from, uh, I forget the term, it's um, uh, the seeker of vengeance or something like that. Right. Yeah, and it's clearly uh, blood, spelled out. Blood avenger. It was his protection to go there and stay. Right. Uh, but it was not punishment. Yeah, it was not punishment. In fact... We had some clear punishment. In fact, some of the punishment, like Jeff has already pointed out, a lot of it was corporal, corporal punishment. It was actually lashes, and there's some passages that indicate that. There's also a little... Uh, Sorry. (laughs) Go ahead, Nate. Uh, I was was just going to say that, well, if, if he did leave and was found by the, like, the victim's family, as I recall, they were able to then kill him. So, I mean, he was kind of stuck there, or he was taking his life into his own hands, or the blood of his life was on his hands if he left yeah. prematurely. Yeah. So I think it, I, I would label it as a punishment for him and other purposes that were mentioned, though, as well. Yeah, yeah. but the execu- so today, executing of the punishment would be later. Today, the vast majority of our prisons are filled with uh, like drug charges. I mean, I wonder what how they would deal with that. And then the other thing that came to my mind was that when I thought of prisons, I thought of angels that were imprisoned. I I didn't know how we'd fit that into the conversation. You know what I mean? Yeah, angels would be confined. Now, that's God's judgment, and God does confine evil, but they're far different from prisons. But there are lots of examples in Scripture of prisons But I want you to notice in Egypt, obviously, Joseph was in prison. We won't look these up, but if you want to jot them down, Joseph, remember? But that's Egyptian. That's the Egyptian system. That's not Israel. Right. Uh, The Philistines. We have an example in Judges 16.21. Samson was in prison. But that's the system of Philistine outside of Israel, on the border there, but outside of it. Assyria, we have Hoshea. King Hoshea was in an Assyrian prison, 2 Kings 17.4.
But again, that's not Israel. That's the Assyrian system. He's speaking just specifically for the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Babylon, gotcha. Jehoiachin, Second Kings 25-27. So they wouldn't have dealt with things like how we think of prisons today. We're just sort of thinking like in terms of their particular time frame. Well, the, these are prisons, but they're not under the Jewish system is the point that, that uh, both Jeff and I are making in that under Israel, Israel's an exception that the, the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and in the first century, the Romans, remember John the Baptist was in sure. prison, Peter, Paul, and Silas, but that's the Roman system, not the Jewish system. The Jewish system executed justice, and it was intended to be swift and in accordance with the crime. And it yes. included non-capital sentences uh, where uh, there was restitution. And we see that in that one example that we looked at in the Exodus passage. Got you. Okay. So do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And we have the second role of government is the rewarding of good. And in general, the reward is peace and uh, freedom to be able to uh, function in a culture and to thrive. So in some sense, a condition of peacefulness is the reward of government as it maintains the restraint of evil. So that is one of the uh, benefits of government and one of the roles of government. And then here we have this interesting passage in verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you for good. What do you think that word minister is? Anyone have a guess? You can probably figure it out. Well, it's the word doulos. No, no, no. Minister. Minister. Diakonos. Oops. Sorry. You're right. Diakonos. Yeah. For it is a minister of God, and it's stated two times later on in verse 4. Yeah, diakonos. In fact, I've got a slide on it. Yeah, so the rewarding is a minister, diakonos. Remember, we saw this word in 12.7. This is a spiritual gift, the gift of service. The idea of service, the idea, in fact, the word deacons is involved in this whole concept. It's the idea of service. Yeah, a minister. Uh, and in most contexts, The exception is a passage like this in the book of Romans, but in most contexts, it refers to the ministry that people can have, and it's it's a broad term, a variety of ways that we can serve God, but it's primarily ministering. From God's perspective, within a divine institution, God has established authorities, rulers, kings, presidents, as serving a purpose or serving God in this function of administering government, they are held responsible for restraining evil and rewarding good. Now, obviously, there are evil rulers that fail in uh, doing what God designs, but that's the divine intention. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. Now, he's going to expand on the, the believer and in the context, not submitting to authority and in fact, resisting it. And 
the expansion for it does not does not bear the sword for nothing. Let's take a look at that concept. So within government, uh, there's also the third role of retribution of evil. And I choose that word. You might substitute punishment of evil if you want to, just to keep the alliteration going here. So we have the restraining of evil and the rewarding of good and the retribution of evil. And the sword is makarya, makarya, that's how you pronounce it. And if you do a word study, you're going to see it's the instrument of execution. And it even is in the book of Revelation where God executes ultimate judgment, ultimate plagues, you might say, and the punishment of evil. So it's an instrument of execution. And it even involves capital punishment. And that's part of the Mosaic law. And it's biblical. And I think in this context, Paul is is basically seeing as part of the function of punishment of evil includes capital punishment. That's a biblical concept. I think from Romans 13, a New Testament concept as well as obviously the mosaic concept. And if you want to pin a passage on your refrigerator to kind of warn your your children or your grandchildren, uh, why don't you put up Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. And for the sake of time, we won't look that one up and maybe we'll look at it next week. But it spells out a capital punishment for children. Can you imagine that? Within the Mosaic law. Now, it's probably uh, older children in the late teen, teen age, but it doesn't specify specifically uh, how young or how old. So that's the third role of government, the retribution of evil or punishment of evil. And then again, for it is a minister of God. And then he, he expands it, an avenger who brings wrath. And we go back to that chapter 12. We don't take out our own vengeance. God has established a means of dealing with problems within a culture, with with crime and those sort of things. God is the one that uh, brings the vengeance and he uses his instruments. And that's part of the design of human government, an avenger who brings wrath on those who practice evil. And there's another verse. We don't have time to look at it. Reasons for conscience. Therefore, it is necessary for you to be in subjection, giving another reason, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So there's a spiritual aspect as well. And I guess an application that we can draw, especially from the Deuteronomy passage that I flashed up there real quick, is it's very important. I was going to give you an example. Maybe next week I'll give you an example from my experience of the importance of teaching children the concept of submitting to authority. If they don't learn the concept of authority, they're going to have a problem in school. And if they still don't learn it, they're going to graduate from school, high school, and they're going to have a problem with the law. And they're going to continue throughout their lives and in some cases, 
they will even die as a result of it. I was going to give you an example of all of those stages of person in my extended family that you can see the whole pattern work itself out. So teach children the importance of submitting to authority. They'll have better marriages. They'll have better families. They'll be more productive citizens. They'll be better members of churches. And they will be uh, happier people if they understand the concept of authority. Okay, well, why don't we move into our time of prayer? Go ahead, Mary Lee. Yeah, just just a quick question. I'm not going to get into it right now, but as we're going through this, uh, help me to understand as we're working all through this where uh, Paul's admonition to Timothy that a soldier does not um, involve himself self in the affairs of the general community in which he's with. That's out of 2 Timothy 2, because I've been kind of wrestling as to where do I stand, how do I support, and so anyhow, another time. Okay, (laughs) we'll save it for next week. Good question. Well, that's actually one of two or three analogies that Paul is instructing Timothy, and Timothy is at that particular point uh, the pastor of a church. So each of those items need to be taken in that greater context. And also the context, or, or also the, uh, the concept, better, these are illustrations. So at the heart of understanding that, you have to get at what is the essence that Paul is trying to illustrate and not carry the illustration too far. So that, that'll help you in uh, coming to the proper understanding there. Okay, uh, or maybe you just. Want I to think. Make- I think that maybe we should just continue to be praying for the believers in Myanmar, since that's an ongoing situation and not uh, that is not probably easing up yet. So we just need to remember to keep them in prayer. Yes. Right. Well, let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful season of spring, the gorgeous weather. Um, the reminders um, in Palm Sunday of your provision of Jesus for us. Um, Father, for life and for death, Um, we think of Susanna and Zach and the pregnancy they're going through. Father, that you would carry this pregnancy to fruition with um, both mom and baby being healthy, Uh, that you would watch over Zach as he heads toward graduation with his master's. You would give him focus and Um, the ability to put his thoughts together into a thesis, if that's what he's got to do. Lord, we thank you for end-of-life issues with Mariana. We pray that you would reveal to her um, your true plan for eternity, that she will make, if she hasn't already made the decision uh, for you, so that she does get to spend eternity with you. We pray for the believers in Myanmar who are being imprisoned and um, possibly executed. I do not know, Father, that you would give them strength um, and endurance and your peace amid the chaos that I'm sure is their reality. Father, we thank you so much for Tom in Rio Rancho or wherever he actually lives um, coming to you as a new child of yours. 
Father, we thank you and we praise you. And I pray for discipleship for him. I pray that he would um, seek out this church for discipleship, that he could grow uh, in you and become strong in his faith. Um, Lord, you are so amazing in all you do for each of us. 